0: Alright, we ready to record? Let's get stuck in. Okay, so we're back in Isaiah, and we are uh, in chapter 34. Um, we, did, we finished off the first seven verses last time. We're going to be bold and push on through and finish the chapter tonight. So let me read to you verses 8 through 17, and then we'll pray and then we'll study. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it, He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds and nettles and thistles in its fortress. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow... Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of Yahweh. Not one of these shall be missing, not one shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded... And his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out uh, to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. So last time, in the first seven verses... um, Oh, sorry, let's, let's pray quickly as we go in. Father, we pray that as we come now to the text tonight, you'll bless our time, bless our study... Help us to understand some of these difficult portions of Isaiah. And Lord, may we, um, as we come to your word, see ever more of you. And Lord, may you uh, be glorified as we come to know you. And may our desire to know you just grow stronger and stronger. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, So, the first seven verses, having dealt with the... um, The cleansing, the repair, the restoration, the redemption of Israel at the end of chapter 33. Chapter 34 dealt with the judgment of the nations. If you were here last time, you'll recall that God is enraged against the nations, verse 2, and he's devoted them to destruction. Um, And there is again this parallel in verse 4 between uh, the hosts of heaven. And the the human rulers, so so we see the demonic human rulership of the nations being judged. And then what we have as we come to verse 5 is we have the description of just sheer bloodiness. Their specific judgment upon Edom because it is going to happen in the place of Bosra. And we have... Here, a land that is soaking up blood. And we ended up last time in Isaiah 63, briefly, looking ahead to the second coming of Christ when he comes and destroys his enemies at Bosra in Edom. And that's where the second coming will be. The destruction of the armies of the nations is really what we've seen so far in this chapter. Okay, so now you're in verse 8. Now, we need to kind of look at this. The details will be quite important so if you have the text, that will be helpful. Um, for Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a day of recompense for the cause of Zion. So we're continuing in the same theme. Um, we're talking about the, the judgment of the nations, the destruction of the armies in Edom. And um, he's continuing pretty much straight on from where he left off. The reason for the destruction that we saw in the first seven verses is because, four. for, Yahweh has a day of vengeance. So we know that God has a time when he chooses to judge. The God who is who brings redemption, the God who brings salvation, is also the God who judges. That This isn't a contradiction in his character, but rather that both are fully outworking of the aspects of his holiness, his righteousness, and even his love. Because even here in his judgment, his love to others will be shown. So, And we've seen that again and again. So here in these verses, we know that God has a day of vengeance. We know that God will bring uh, revenge, as it were. Remember, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not us to have vengeance, but God will. But specifically here in verse 8, it says, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And here, um, and the Hebrew has plural forms, just in a way of, emphasizing intensity here is just going to be this this very significant day of vengeance which is a year of recompense for the cause of Zion now it may be that the day and the year are parallels are just periods of time and he's clearly saying that there is a day of vengeance and then there is recompense to Israel and the linking of the two means that as we've seen consistently through Isaiah, as we see consistently through the Old Testament, that the judging of the nations is directly and specifically in response to, it's caused by, how they have treated Israel. God uses the nations to judge Israel, but the nations who judge Israel, though God chooses for them to do that, though even calls them his servants for doing that, that they are nonetheless responsible for their actions. It's this it's this thing that seems to us like a paradox where man makes a decision and exercises his free will in the human realm, but the God in the heavens is sovereign over it all. And we don't fully understand how those things blend together, but the Bible is very clear that they do. And so, so God uses the nations to judge Israel, but then, but then the nations are judged specifically for how they treated Israel. I suspect the distinction between the day... And the year is to signify a shorter period of time and a longer period of time. The destruct, pardon me, the destruction of the armies here is something that happens in a moment. Christ comes, and boom, they're destroyed. But the recompense to Israel, Israel, as it were, being paid back, is described as a longer period of time. In other words... As intense as the the judgment is, more intense and perhaps much longer is the period of restoration and recompense for Israel. That may well be nations are judged, now we come into the kingdom, and now there's this long period of the kingdom where Israel is recompensed. So Israel has to suffer. There is a day of vengeance. I can't believe that the day of vengeance here is only referring to the day when the, when the Antichrist and his armies are destroyed, as spoken of in, in the immediate context. We've seen Isaiah use the term the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, on that day, on that day, on that day, just again and again and again. And consistently that day has been a day of vengeance. So I think what he's saying is, there is a period of time when God will pour out his wrath on the earth, seven years, and um, when that period of time has come to an end, there will be a much longer period of time where there is recompense to Israel, and that will be the thousand-year millennial kingdom. That's my best way of of trying to understand the specifics there. But when we come to the details here in verse 9 and following, what we're going to see is we're going to see Edom becoming a burning wasteland. Now, boy, I don't know how many of you have been here from... Early on, But if you were here, I think some of you were, if you were here for Isaiah 13, with the beginning of the oracles and the judgment of Babylon, we saw exactly the same thing there. The Babylon will ultimately be destroyed, and when it is destroyed, it will then subsequently become a burning wasteland forever. And it will become a place of judgment. And we saw at that time, in chapter 13, we should perhaps even turn back there just briefly... Isaiah 13, going back uh, verse 20 and 22. Um, we see the burning wasteland uh, elsewhere. But look at verse 20 and 21. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. So it's just a wilderness. There's nothing there. Burning wasteland. Uh, I can't remember the the verse where the burning is, but it comes a little later, I think. But, um, But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant places, uh, pleasant palaces, rather. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. In other words, there is a judgment coming to Babylon that will leave it a burning wasteland, but in this passage specifically, people will not be able to live there. But these wild animals will. And one of the animals listed there... It was wild goats, which is a term that is used, and I remember teaching you this at the time, but I will reference it again now. And you don't need to turn to these passages, I'm just going to reference them for you. Um, in Leviticus 17:7. 7, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. So the Israelites were making Sacrifices offerings not to Yahweh but to false gods. Isaiah's point, uh, sorry, Moses's point in Leviticus is that in sacrificing to other gods, they're sacrificing to demons goat demons, demons taking the form of a goat. There are some elements of modern horror stories. <laughs> the horror movies that uh, have elements of truth in the Bible. That the goat is associated in multiple places with... Um, the goat form is often associated with demons. Um, then another time, and again, no need to turn there, I'm just going to read it to you. Second Chronicles 11 and verse 15, And he appointed his own high priest for the high places and for the goat idols and the calves that he had made. So he has made, this is false worship going on here, that is being done um, by Jeroboam, the bad king. And Jeroboam is making these idols, and one of them is in the form of a goat, because he's worshipping to a false god, which is a demonic being in the form of a goat. In both of those verses, the same word is being used, that's translated in Isaiah 13 as wild goat. So just as a recap, Babylon is judged, it becomes a burning wasteland, it's the the greatest of nations at the last end of days, it is destroyed, and then it becomes a burning wasteland, nobody can live there, nobody can dwell there, it's empty of all people, but nonetheless there are these strange animals, one of which we can specifically identify as demonic. There's nothing in that wasteland to suggest that these other animals will be able to live. What what do jackals live off? Well, jackals live off are animals. What are the other animals that the jackals eat living off? They're living off green stuff. There is no green stuff. It's just a wilderness. It's a burning wasteland. It's pitch and sulfur. So so there won't be animals living there. There won't be anything living there. I believe, as do many others, that the animals here are, which all, by the way, are terminology that is hardly ever used in Scripture. Very rare words. And so the, the naming of these animals is guesswork at best. But I think that they are animal forms of demonic creatures, demonic beings. They are the idle form of the false gods of other nations. So that's what's going to happen. The Babylon in the last days will become a prison during the period of the kingdom. While the righteousness is on much of the earth, covering the rest of the world, the Babylon will remain a prison for demonic beings. Now, what we're going to see here in chapter 34, by that way of little intro and recap, in chapter 34, we're going to see that Edom is going to be exactly the same. So let's have a look at that. Um, Isaiah 34, verse 9. The streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, and the land shall become burning pitch. Not pitch as in the sense of a pitch that you play uh, sports games on, a sports field but pitch as in that, that substance, that tar-like substance that you can set alight and will burn. And it is going to be a place of perpetual burning, um, and the land will become a burning pitch, a burning pitch. Uh, and so, night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up Forever. I think it actually, just re- remembering now, I think it may be Isaiah 18 that we saw about. Um, uh, maybe not. But we did see it basically being smoke going up forever in Babylon. But anyway, um, night and day shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. So there will be constantly, perpetually, day and night, there will be fire. Can you imagine that you have a place that is just constantly burning? A fire in the distance that just burns and burns and burns. And you could look from Israel across. Remember that in the kingdom, it's quite probable that Zion is the highest mountain in the world. There will be, as there were in the days of the flood, so there will be... In the day of judgment by fire rather than water, there will be geographical changes, I think. I'm not going to die on that hill, pun intended, but I'm not going to die on that mountain because um, it's possible it's only meant symbolically, but it does speak about Zion being the highest mountain. If that is literal, and I tend to, uh, to err towards it being so, then that means that other mountains are flattened. Clearly, the flattening of kingdoms, which symbolically are represented by mountains, is what's going on. I just happen to think that in the physical realm, that symbolism will actually literally happen as well. If that's the case, then when you go to worship Christ on Zion, where he will be dwelling, then you'll be able to look across to Edom and see the smoke continually burning day and night. Throughout the time of the kingdom... There will be a continual sign of judgment, continual warning, continual memory, and so that will be going on constantly. And we're told specifically that it's, it's um, this burning will go on forever. Now, we need to—I think I mentioned this in the past in Isaiah, but it's worth a repetition. Something you need to know: when we see the word "forever," then we understand it to mean forever. Like, how long is it for? Well, it's forever. So when does it end? Well, it it doesn't. It just goes on forever. But the Hebrew language didn't have a way of expressing forever. And so the word translated forever means to the end of an age, for an age. So the old covenant is described as being an eternal covenant. And some people have used that as an argument to say, well, the old covenant never ended but you read the book of Hebrews and it clearly did. It means it was there forever until the end of an age. And that age came to an end with the death of Christ. So, um, so we just need to remember that as we do so. And why do I emphasize that? Because I don't think that Edom and Babylon will be burning wastelands when there's a new heaven and a new earth. I think this is for the, the age, i.e. for the kingdom, and not beyond that. Um, So there will be a continual burning, and notice the parallelism here, a continued burning forever, and it's going to lie waste generation to generation, nothing coming forth from it, and no one will pass through it forever and ever. And whether that additional ever is emphasizing that it goes beyond an age that it does go on to forever and ever, as we would think of it, or whether it just means that this age is an incredibly long period of time, I couldn't say for certain. Is it possible that in the new heaven and the new earth, that this, though it may not be a wasteland anymore, though it not may be burning anymore, though it not, may, may not be a prison for demons anymore, is it possible that nobody goes through it and there's no passing through of that particular place as something forever and ever, I suspect not, I suspect not, because I see the whole earth being covered with the glory of God, I see creation going back to its original state, and I see, and its original intent, more to the point, the identifying of the whole world, and I just don't see that there's a place for that. So I think that it just is emphasizing that this age is a very, very long time. Now, the no passing through, we may come back to later, because that's an interesting expression. But when we come to verse 11, it says, but, so there's a contrast here. No person is going to pass through it. It's going to be a place where no one's going to live, no one's going to pass through even. If you can't pass through it, then you can't live there. So it's kind of going to the next degree. No one's going to dwell there, but no one's going to even pass through. But in verse 11, there will be something that will be there. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. And so we have part one of two parts here, even... um, some of you may, have spot, may, may be able to read through this spot an in Inclusio. We have animals, we have a middle bit, and then we have animals again. So there is, there is a little structure here. With these early animals, we have hawk, we have a porcupine, we have an owl, and we have a raven. Owls constantly come up, various types of owls, because when you, when you have a bird-like creature and nobody knows what it is, people tend to go for various owls. I think we saw that in uh, chapter 13, 13. Um, Should probably have a finger in there as well. Hold on a second. Um, No, 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 uh, no, no hawks there, and no owls there. But we don't know for sure these animals. Um, My version, ESV, says hawk. Um, Other versions say screech owl to distinguish it from any other owl, and some versions say pelican now if you don't know whether it's an owl or a hawk or a pelican I think we can safely say that people aren't very sure what this is so we can't be definitive Um, in other words it is presumably some bird like figure that represented uh, a a demonic being, a demonic god the owl and the raven equally the same oh the porcupine I skimmed over some versions think the porcupine is a hedgehog (laughs) something with spikes let's leave it at that shall we Something with spikes, again, just something that was, that was created, that was made to give an image to the God that was being worshipped, I think. And then the owl is a bird of desolate places, literally, and the raven is a bird of desolate walls. And so they may simply be symbolic of the place that they're in as much as the creatures that they are. So we have our first reference to animals there. Again, we, I would immediately presume them to be demonic, even on that alone, but it becomes very clear when we come back to them in verses 13 and 14. Um, and then it says this, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. So here in the middle of this section of the animals, we have, um, we have a, a few things that are said. firstly, There is a line of confusion and a plumb line of emptiness. Now, the line and the plumb line are demarcations that will be used in building. The point here is, though, that the outworking of this is confusion and emptiness, that there has been particular planning to do this. In other words, God has said, here are the borders... Here's how it's going to be, here's what's going to happen, here's what the land's going to do, here's, you know, this is planned. This isn't a haphazard, this is God's very careful planning. Okay? The other thing that is fascinating to notice is this, that the two words, confusion and emptiness, are the same two Hebrew words that are used in Genesis 1 and verse 2 when it talks about the world after God creates it, and says it is without form and void. Confusion and emptiness, without form and void. So what's he saying here? Well, he's clearly making an allusion to Genesis 1-2, clearly. So why is he doing so? Some people have said that it implies that there's judgment in Genesis 1-2, that Satan fell, and then God judged the earth because of the fall of Satan and then he recreates. Um, I, I'm open to that view. I used to hold it for many years. I'm now more and more coming to the conclusion that the fall of Satan is actually found in Genesis 3. But the argument against that is, A, it's subtlety, and B, you can't take the meaning of words retrospectively and read them back in. These terms here are used in a sense of judgment, but doesn't mean that they were in Genesis 1-2 which is the argument that's used. Now, I think what's going on here is this. I think that what he's saying is, this looks terrible, it looks permanent, but this is how the world was, and God was able to bring life out of it. In other words, God is, is wrapping up the old world, ready to complete a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, we've already seen in Isaiah that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth, right? What happened before he made the current earth? It was in a state of tohu and vohu, without form and void, confusion and emptiness. What's happening now, what is going to continue even through the age, even through the kingdom, there's going to be a place of tohu and vohu, of emptiness, confusion, without form and void. Why? Because God will eventually bring about a new earth and a new creation. I think that's the implication of it. Verse 12 says it's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. So there are nobles, uh, with regards to nobles rather, there are none of them there to call it a kingdom. So the land's going to exist, it's going to be there, but what, what Edom had is what's called an elective monarchy. And with an elective monarchy, when the king dies the nobles, the other kind of noblemen, the rulers, the other kind of under-rulers, will vote up a new king. So they elect, not the people, not democracy, but the other leaders elect a new king. You see that that in Catholicism. If the pope dies, then the other cardinals will elect and vote between them, the next pope. And you see it in many churches today with an elder-led system. The elders uh, who remain, if a pastor, teaching pastor, leaves, they will often decide between them who the new new pastor will be without the church being involved in that decision. That's common as well. It's that kind of system. So the point is, there are no under-rulers to elect rulers so it is not a kingdom as such. I think that the point here is actually a little bit deeper. I think what it's saying is there are none of these people that would have their own king. Remember, the human kings of the nations bow and worship the false gods of those nations. There are human rulers and there are earthly rulers, um, heavenly rulers. But it seems to be the human rulers that are worshipping giving preference to, honouring, respecting the heavenly rulers. So if there's a hierarchy there, and often the Bible kind of puts them together as parallels, rulers of this kind and rulers of that kind, but if there's a hierarchy, the heavenly ones rule over the earthly ones. If that's the case, then what it's saying is, there's no no humans there at all, so there's no human rulers, so there's no human rulers to to worship and honour and respect the heavenly rulers, and therefore this is not a kingdom as it used to be. There are no longer any princes. Who were, remember princes are just a term for rulers. The term princes has been used to refer to the heavenly rulers. So the heavenly rulers are there. But yet they're not heavenly rulers anymore. Why? Because they've got nothing to rule over. There's no nobles. So therefore, those who were the ones overseeing the kingdom are within the land, but the land is no longer a kingdom because they don't have a hierarchy anymore. They have nothing to rule over. So it's a very poetic and clever way of saying they're still there, but they don't have a kingdom anymore. They're in the kingdom, but they don't have a kingdom. That's, I think, what is going on there. All its princes shall be nothing. The princes are there, but they are nothing. They are of no value. They are prisoners in the burning wasteland. Then it says this, thorns shall grow over its strongholds and nettles and thistles in its fortresses. Its, um, Its former places, its... The places that will, will rule it, the, the, you know, the, the castles, some will talk of this as being palaces, um, hence the places where people who ruled lived, that those will now just grow over. There's going to be no one and none there. And I think if you want to see a chiastic structure, and I, and I, and I do, then you've got the animals in verse first part of verse 11, and animals kicking in again in verse 14. Then you have this state of emptiness, pre-creation and confusion that exists at the end of verse 11, and we see something similar in the beginning uh, beginning of verse 13 when we just have this place of of confusion, of emptiness, of wilderness, just with the thorns and the thistles, which are used in that kind of terminology elsewhere in Isaiah, being over the places there. And that leaves in the middle there this, this verse we've just done, that the separation of the heavenly rulers from their earthly kings. And that, I think, then, is making that the highlight of the section. That's the emphasis, which is why I took a bit of time upon it. So then we come now to the end of verse 13, and we're back to the the other side of the animal sandwich, as it were. Um, It shall be a haunt for jackals and an abode for ostriches. If I, you can stay there, but if I go back to, to verses, um, to Isaiah 13 and verses 20 through 22, we again see jackals there, and we again see ostriches there. We see the same two Hebrew words used, and they are fairly consistently translated. Um, though, of course, again, we don't know exactly what they are. But they will be there, it will be their haunt and their abode, their dwelling place. Wild animals, and that is a general term, a more general term, which again is used in Isaiah 13, shall meet with hyenas. Hyenas, again, that Hebrew word is used in... um, that will be used... that was used rather in Isaiah 13. In Isaiah 13, 21, it actually says, but wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures... And these animals, hyenas, some say wolves, they're basically creatures that howl. That's what they are. So for some reason, these two particular creatures, the the wild animals and the howling creatures, are linked together. Again, it's possible that maybe there are some strange animals that live there with the demons, that parallel them, but I suspect that there is, for some reason, that is beyond me, my understanding completely, the pairing together of wild animals, whatever they refer to, whether specific or general, and the howling creatures or hyenas. But they are paired together in both passages. And so they shall meet with hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Now, there's much talk here about fellows and mates and neighbors that we'll have to unpack in a minute, but the wild goat is the, uh, the, the Hebrew word that was used in Leviticus 17 and 2 Chronicles 11 that speaks specifically of a demon goat, a false god taking goat form, or worshipped at least in goat form, that is a specific demonic being. And that demon shall cry to his fellow. So, we have the pairing of wild animals and hyenas. And now we have the pairing of the wild goat with his fellow. Now, we'll come back to this this concept of fellows and mates and what have you. But... It's interesting that immediately following it says, Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. So there's a word here, fellow, which is often translated mate, in the sense of an animal's mate, not their their buddy, nudge, nudge, but the one that they mate with. Um, And... uh, but it can also just simply mean a female neighbor. It's a rare word, but it's used, and it can mean a female neighbor. So notice that the wild goat, this wild goat demon, shall cry to his fellow. He's, he's, a, he's masculine. And then when it says the fellow, it says, Indeed, and that's very interesting, that indeed. There the night bird settles. And the indeed suggests to me that the night bird, which is described here in the female terms, is the fellow, the female neighbor, of the wild goat. So the wild animals are paired with the howling creatures, hyenas, wolves, whatever. And the wild goat is paired with this night bird. Now we don't need to think of them as mates in the sense of mating and offspring, but for some reason they're connected and they're paired together. And it seems to me that there are general terms on type of wild animals, types of howling creatures. And now there is one specific well-known demon here, and this well-known demon has a female neighbor, partner, whatever that it is associated with, that is here rendered night bird. In my footnote it says, <laughs> quite amusingly, identity uncertain. In which case, why did you say nightbird? Because you ain't got a clue, pal. The Hebrew word is the word lilith. If you know any old ladies called lilith, you can let them know that they're named after a female demon. Um, In all all seriousness, you can. Um, And this lilith is a thing, and you know what the rabbis are like? When the rabbis have a word and there's something that's unclear, they love to make it clear, Truth, reason, you know, context, that's not relevant to them. They just got to give you answers. Doesn't matter if the answers are true or not, they're just going to give you answers. So, the, the rabbis in um, Talmudic and Kabbalistic Judaism had a whole theology around this Lilith. She was a female demon, specifically a night demon. She was a night demon who wandered through desert places. Um, She became latterly associated with Adam. They had a weird mythology where she's the first wife of Adam. um, And now, having been cast aside, she roams around, especially at night, in these wilderness places. And she seeks to harm children, especially newborns who had just been born. And uh, also men who are alone at night. It's like describing the plot of kind of half the 70s horror movies that exist out there. But this is where this stuff comes from. The the rabbis like their ghost stories. So we have a female demon that is associated with a goat demon, and the idea is that they're paired off. Now, I said earlier that it was interesting that we were told that in Edom, this place of judgment and a prison for these demonic creatures, it says no one will pass through. And in Matthew 12, verse 43, we're told that when an evil spirit, or more literally there, an unclean spirit is cast out of someone, that it wanders around and it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Again, it's kind of just piqued my interest, kind of passing through waterless places, wildernesses. We have a, a wilderness here with nobody passing through. Maybe there's a parallel there, that they have a degree of freedom right now, but in the last days they will be confined and there will be no more passing through. But um, certainly it's an interesting thing, this this Lilith. Um, Lilith is, to my mind, um, I think the one thing that the rabbis did get right is they saw this female demon as being significant, which is why they built a mythology around it. Because if the, if the male goat demon is significant and he's being paired off with this, this female night demon, then their combination is significant. I think that what Isaiah is doing, if I might be so bold as to tentatively throw out a few ideas, I think what Isaiah is doing is he's having, having used the chiastic structure to give us a focus on the, the human leaders are gone, and now you just have demonic leaders, in verse 12, that what he's doing now is essentially giving you a king and queen of the demonic non-kingdom. I think that's essentially what's going on here. But, you know, I might be completely wrong. But that will be a resting place and they will rest together. They will be associated together. And then the list goes on. We have owls nesting and laying and hatching and gathering her young in her shadows. Some people think the young should be eggs rather than young. And uh, some people think that the owl is actually a snake. So, so again, it just goes to show that no one really knows. And again, we have hawks referenced here. It's a different word to the previous hawks. Some people think it's kites, another type of raptor. Some think it is vultures. But again, it really doesn't matter so much. What does matter is that there are going to be gathering over little ones. I don't think that this is the reproduction um, I think that is imagery that is being used. Notice the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. That's with her female fellow. It's almost as if someone of significance is paired off with someone else. And it, it's almost like the... Um, I, I read this almost as being like the, the cell block plan. You know, if you were ever a kid and you went to camp and you're sleeping in dormitories, then you have your beds assigned, you know? so and is in, in dormitory one, and these are the beds and what have you, you know, it's kind of a bit like that, that you guys are going to be in this place to part together, and you're going to be in that place together. And I think that that harmonizes fairly well with the context, because in, 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 a, in a, a couple of places here, you know, one that we've had, and one that's going to be repeated in verse 17, there is this emphasis that God is planning this precisely. And so, is it... Animals reproducing? No, I think it's one with, with, uh, who had maybe had a higher authority in the demonic realm having to say um, with some who have lower authority. It's a king and a queen being paired off. It's different types of demons being paired off. But what it's saying is this, that this isn't just them being thrown haphazardly, haphazardly that they are being told not just where to be in the burning wasteland, but they're specifically being apportioned parts of it. Now, there's one more reason for me to think that and we'll come to that at the very end so all of this really comes to a conclusion then with verse 16 with the command following the end of this section um, seek and read from the book of Yahweh Yahweh has a book here whether that's a literal book or simply the prophetic word that Isaiah is spoken and that he's He knows is going to be written, is really beside the point. The point is that there is to be seeking that is done over God's words. The word seek means to kind of lean over a book, to search, to read intently. And so there there will be a reading of God, a close attention to what God is saying, kind of like we do here on Sunday nights, paying close attention to what God says. He says, not one of these shall be missing and none shall be without her mate. That's repetition of mate, which is, again, female neighbor. So they're going to be portioned off. They're going to be portioned off and God is planning this meticulously. Why would you do that, Lord? Why would you apportion specific demons to other demons within the area? He says... For the mouth of Yahweh has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Now, with here the lot and the line, again, we have more references to a very specific plan. Specific planning and God, like I said, there's one more example of how God is doing this very precisely. And so God is, is commanding it. The Spirit is bringing it about. He's gathering them together. There's a lot for them. They are each having its own section. They have it as a possession and they will dwell there from generation to generation. Now this is fascinating to me. Some commentators, even some very good ones, even some of my favorite ones, Understand this last verse, and maybe verse and a half, to be a reference to Israel. Now you can see why in one sense. Look at the terminology here. He apportions out lots. So he casts the lot and portions them out. That's what we've seen with Israel. The casting of lots, the apportioning of land with regards to the tribes of Israel. We see them possessing it forever. From generation to generation, they dwell in it. Gosh, if you looked at verse 17, part B, the second half, it just said, they shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. And I just plucked it out of context and said to you, Isaiah. What's he referring to? We would all go, Israel. In other words, all of this is imagery that is spoken of Israel the Lord commanding and gathering them together them having the land apportioned to them and then possessing in it and dwelling forever and ever no wonder that some commentators think that this is Israel I totally get it but they're totally wrong because the context is absolutely completely clear it's continuing thematically on and there is a clear break in context recognised by those who gave us chapter breaks by starting of chapter 35 in the next section when it passes on to Israel. Now some will say, when we come to chapter 35, it deals with the restoration of Israel. And indeed it does. So some would say, well, it just begins a little bit earlier than the chapter break. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here is this. Is that God is saying, just like I'm gathering Israel together, and I'm going to give them a land, and I'm going to let them dwell there, in the same way, in the kingdom, the demons are going to be gathered together, their their lots are going to be cast, they're going to have their place apportioned, and I'm carefully planning it out. I've spoken it with my mouth, and my spirit is going to control them and gather them together. In other words, God is deliberately using the same terminology that he uses for gathering Israel together into the land for the kingdom and he's using that terminology to speak of the demons. He's speaking ironically. He's saying they too will have their place in the kingdom. Notice that we just a chapter or two ago saw the word princes used in verse 12. Central theme in this thing where the chiasic structure points to, key verse. We saw that used earlier on. Uh, in chapter 32 in the context of this whole flow with the king reigning in righteousness and princes ruling in justice in other words we saw the word princes being used for God establishing the rule within the kingdom there's one king Jesus Christ and there are the princes who rule underneath him within the kingdom right God does it all and there for them they're going to have a kingdom but it's not a kingdom because there's no one to rule over. They are going to be apportioned off, like in the kingdom. These princes will be there, like the princes of the kingdom, and they will have their land apportioned, like those in the kingdom. Can you see all the parallels that are being created? In other words, within the kingdom of God, there is a place of judgment for the, for the time of the kingdom, for the thousand year reign. There will be a place of judgment, and God has as carefully planned that as he has planned The place of Israel in the kingdom as well. When God determines what will happen in the land of Israel for the kingdom, what will happen in the land, what the Jews will do, then God makes determination and decides what will happen to the land. In the same way, He sovereignly made determination over what's going to happen in Edom and what's going to happen in Babylon. God is sovereign over the demons as much as He's sovereign. Over Israel. And God is going to redeem Israel, but there will be no redemption for the demonic beings that rule this world. And that very naturally and smoothly, having used Israel like terminology to speak of his careful planning for the demonic realm in the kingdom, that then leads us nicely on to chapter 35 and verse 1, where we'll pick up in the new year, where he then goes to speak in contrast to that, what is going to happen in the land of Israel. And so we will turn to that next time. But let me just end with this thought. It could easily be argued that as you come to passages like this that it's kind of a bit of an academic exercise and, you know, what's the point in it and what have you. Well, I think there's lots of points in it. Firstly, God gave it to us. Verse 16, he says, "Seek." Um, Seek and read, I think it said. Seek and read from the book of, the, of, of Yahweh. In other words, God specifically says in the midst of this section, I want you to look at my word and see that I have a plan for the demonic realm. This was given to us, not so that it could be, could be wrestled with by some academic scholars years to come. I've got, I've got a whole shelf and a half i think of academic commentaries on the book of isaiah and you know they skim over the book of isaiah i've got i've got two three volume commentaries that give the section that we've dealt with tonight no more than half a page or a page you know people just don't want to look at this in depth but god has specifically says you're got to look intently at it there's something here for you and what is it for us We need to understand in this day and age, and boy, right now, in this country right now, that nations are ruled over by spiritual beings. There are principalities and powers that oversee, and that God is sovereign over them all. And I don't know exactly what happens in the heavenly realms. And I don't know when one king changes to another king, whether there are corresponding changes in the spiritual realm. I'm sure there are when countries' borders change. But I do know that when we have a country where a ruler changes and the election is as hard fought over and there's, you know, and again, I'm not going to make public statements on on politics. I know you've all got your own views, but we have both sides claiming that if the other side wins, that it would be nothing short of a coup. So, seeing liberal and conservative friends say almost identical things. We have a fighting going on right now I should give the date for context in case someone's listening in years to come. But it's uh, it's the middle of December 2020. Monday, I believe, is the deadline for the certification of electoral votes following this, this disputed election. We still don't know if it's going to be Trump or Biden. We still don't know who will win. And when we do know who will officially win, we still don't know if that was a fair win. We just know nothing. But I tell you, we do know a couple of things. Firstly, there are spiritual beings who rule in the heavenly places. Principalities and powers, Paul speaks of the Mass. These are terms used of beings, spiritual beings, that oversaw geographical regions. Let me just read to you a little bit from Ephesians again. Um, you think I'm going to turn to chapter 6, but I'm not. says in chapter 3 to me though I'm the very least of the saints this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who have created all things so that through the church this is important, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known God is going to make something known What's he going to make known? His wisdom. How is he going to make it known? Through the church. To whom is he going to make his wisdom known through the church? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you want the rulers in the heavenly realms fighting Lord knows what, angelic warfare, who knows what's going on right now? You want to send them a message? We are the message. Church. Church. The church is the message to the the demonic realm, saying, God says, look how clever I am. You thought you'd won. You thought that you had killed the Messiah, and you'd won. And you thwarted my prophecy. And that very thing has brought about my church, which is a sign to you that I am sovereign and you will die ultimately, that I will have victory ultimately. Your time is numbered. It's a statement. And then in chapter six, it's the one that you do know we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's why we're going to put on the whole armour of God so we stand against the schemes of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we, how do when and you know that passage, I'm sure you do, how do we deal with the fact that there are spiritual beings who in some way, shape or form have authority over countries and nations on the earth today? We put on spiritual armour, we make sure that we know who we are, we make sure that we understand who God is, we place our trust in him, we come together, because it is the church, it is the church, as the church functions, as the church operates, as the church um, is equipped through the pastors and teachers, through the work of the apostles and prophets. As the church e- e- equips the saints, the saints do the work of ministry and the church matures and, and the work of God is done, right? So right now in this nation, we have a battle for the nation in the heavenly realms. And is it any surprise that right now, for most of the country, the human rulers who serve the heavenly rulers are saying, you can't go to church. No coincidence at all. None at all we need to be abundantly clear that the battle is heavenly. How do we fight spiritual powers? Do you go on a political rally? No, you don't. You can if you want. I don't care. Do what you like. I'm not saying it's sinful to do it, but that's not how we accomplish anything spiritually. And if you want to go and sign your recall the governor things, then that's you living exercising your freedom. And if I was a citizen, I'd probably have signed it myself. So go ahead and sign it. But that's not how you accomplish spiritual things. You accomplish spiritual things at this time, in this nation, fighting the spiritual entities, the spiritual powers and authorities. You fight it by doing church. That's how you fight it. You fight it by doing church. You fight it by coming to church. You fight it by, by being equipped in the word in the context of church. And I do believe that if you do it on live stream at home, you're watering it down. I do believe that if you do it outside, because the governor's told you you can only do it if you do it outside, you're watering it down. We have to stand strong, because what we are doing in meeting is not jumping through hoops of a human ruler who's taking orders from a heavenly ruler. What we're doing is taking direct orders from our heavenly ruler. And we, as we meet... I'm making a statement to the demonic realm, who's giving their commands to the human realm, that we will meet and that God is in charge and that He is sovereign. This is why I believe so passionately in churches meeting right now. Regardless of COVID, regardless of the, 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 tr- the veracity of the situation with COVID, regardless of anything else, we have to meet because even if there is a real virus that could potentially kill us, there's stuff going on in the spiritual realm that's more important. And I wish, how I wish, that we all understood that. So, Isaiah 34. Obscure? Complicated? Perhaps. Necessary? Absolutely. Because to us right now, in this day, and this time, it's a reminder that whoever wins this battle Whatever happens in the spiritual realms, whoever becomes president, whatever effect it has on this country, whatever effect it has longer term on the Constitution, all of these are short-term things that we sometimes care more about than we should because the long-term picture is that God will win the war. He has a place allotted to them and that is where they shall dwell forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your rich goodness to us. Father, I pray that we would be aware of your plans for the demonic realm. And I pray that you would uh, enable us, Lord, to fight the demonic realm by doing church, maturing together corporately as you commanded, and declaring your wisdom in creating church, in having church to the demonic entities that are so desperate to stop us from doing so. Father, we rest in your sovereign hand, trusting you at this time and in all times. For you are glorious and you are mighty and you are good. Amen.